Good morning. If you'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, we'll continue to look at the pastoral epistles together. Uh, Today we'll look at verses 11 through 15. I want to read that text and give you a little summary statement where we're headed and then pray again for the preaching of God's word today. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Grace Church, let's hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I hope that we'll see in today's text a very encouraging thing. That God's grace in Christ saves us, sanctifies us, gives us hope, and motivates us to good works. So really four things that we want to see. That God's grace in Christ saves us, sanctifies us, gives us hope, and motivates us to good works. Let me pray for the preaching of the word this morning. Father, be gracious to us again. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we we ask, we pray that your gospel come again today, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around grace for some time, you've heard me pray the prayer that I just prayed, uh, but I wanna give attention to uh, the final phrase, full conviction. Um, I trust and I pray that each time we voice that prayer that God will do those three things that he'll come in power, that the Holy Spirit will be present. There'll be full conviction, that we'll be fully convicted by the text. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of our sin bubbles to the top of our mind and we just begin to confess, but that we believe, we have this conviction that God's word is true to the fullest. That's my prayer this morning. Well, imagine with me, if you will, that you go to sleep in the comfort of your bed the night before. If you're like me, you you especially appreciate your bed, your pillow, and the comfort of your home. But imagine with me that when you awake the next morning, you're lying without a pillow, without a blanket, on a cold floor, in a dark room, so that when you open your eyes, you still can't see anything. It's pitch black. The cold is 
certainly uh, there, similar to probably what the room feels like to you right now. I see everybody bundled up. Probably be a wise idea to always bring a coat to Grace Church. You don't have a coat in this room. It's pitch black. There's not even a crack of light that can be seen anywhere. You stretch out your hand to feel for your surroundings and there's nothing there. So you gradually stand to your feet on this cold floor. Still nothing can be felt. You begin to take small steps in one direction, not knowing what's in front of you, but slowly extending your hand to see if something may be there so that you don't trip or fall. And after several small steps, you finally reach a wall that's as cold as the floor. It feels like maybe it's metal of some sort. Add to the inability to see anything, there's complete silence. You begin to feel along the wall, which is completely smooth. There's no crack, no crevice, not a single bump. And you slowly follow the wall to its end where you discover a 90 degree angle, a corner. But the next wall is the same, perfect, smooth, nothing there. You repeat this action three more times, probably a 10 by 10 room in size, you guess. You begin to feel from the floor to the tip of your reach to see if there's an exit, a door or anything, but there's nothing there. You begin to reach upward to see if you can touch the ceiling. Again, nothing there. So you jump to the best of your ability and still nothing there. You are helplessly trapped in a cold, completely dark room with no exit. The floor is empty. The walls are bare. The ceiling is out of reach. No way out. Pitch black. Until a small light appears 20 feet above your location. And suddenly you can see what your sense of touch had already established. The room is a perfect square, still walls and thick at that. Not one crack, no exit, except there is now this one new detail. The light in the top corner of the room has revealed the dimensions. But you can also see that this light is a hatch and rolled very tightly at the top of this hatch is a rope ladder bound together tightly tucked against the top of the wall but it's still out of reach you have no equipment to untie the rope no way to reach the ladder you know there is no ability on your own to reach the ladder so now what now what your only hope is that someone would open the hatch and let down the ladder for your escape. Well, this silly illustration, which I admit I'm not good at, is really the condition that Titus describes in large part in the very first phrase of today's text. We don't have the knowledge or ability to save ourselves. If the hatch wasn't cracked open and the light didn't come in, we'd have no idea that there's a ladder there 20 feet above us that would be in a way of escape. We'd have no clue. All we know is we're in a pitch black room with cold, bare walls, no way out. 
We don't have the knowledge or the ability to save ourselves. Titus 2 chapter, excuse me, Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. God's grace has been revealed to us according to the text. It has appeared. It's not distant. It's not unknown. It has appeared. It's been revealed to us. Let's just tell the story. In the person and work of Jesus, it has shown up. It has been brought to light. It's been made visible. It can be clearly known. Jesus has revealed himself. God's grace is made visible to us in Jesus Christ. If you're unsure of the grace of God, then you have not looked closely at Jesus. The Bible tells us that God's grace has appeared. It means it can be seen. And if you've never seen the grace of God, you haven't looked rightly at Jesus. We know, according to Scripture, that Jesus actually appeared. He came to earth to be seen by men. Luke 179 says this, to shine or appears, the same word, upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's why Jesus came. This appearing is an appearance of God to men. This appearing is the first advent of Jesus, that God would come and be with us. This appearing that Titus 2.11 talks about is the revelation that God has been concealed or hidden for a long time, but now what was previously not visible can be clearly seen in Jesus. This appearing that Paul mentions is the condescension of Jesus, literally God with us, among us, visible to us. But not just visible in the flesh, but the knowledge and understanding of the heart of God through the life of Jesus to see him sinless. This appearing is an appearing of the truth of God to the darkened heart and minds of men. This appearing that we find in Titus 2.11 is the voice of God in ultra clarity through the teachings of Jesus. You want to know what God thinks, believes? What does Jesus teach? There's a verse in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 13, that says, his lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. The actual word there that's translated lips is his language. It was a sweet aroma to the ears of those who were desperate for his salvation. This appearance of the grace of God is made tangible through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his death for our sins, his resurrection for new life. This appearance is the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, the good news of our salvation that we have in Christ. This appearing is the heart of God made visible in the second person of the Trinity. So let's not skip past this first phrase, dear saints. May I challenge you again to make the four gospels your home in meditation. If the appearing of the grace of God is Jesus Christ, then let's go see him together. Go spend time again 
in the Gospels. See Jesus. Look at him again. Consider his words. See the beauty of his coming. We talk about uh, Romans 10, the coming of the good news, how beautiful those feet are. How beautiful are Jesus' feet that he would bring us good news of good things, the grace of God, that he would bring to us the grace of God. Absorb the heart of God in the actions that Jesus displays to the rebels of his earthly days. Know the compassion and mercy of God in the death of Christ. Go to the gospels again and realize the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus. Know God spiritually. One can't be satisfied with the knowledge of scripture. You must know and understand the deep realities of the gospel in your spirit. I found myself this week as I'm preparing to preach in Titus chapter two, reading an old favorite book of mine and there's others that have um, either have copies of this or have read excerpts from it uh, by a guy named Isaac Ambrose, a book called Looking Unto Jesus. If you don't have a copy, I recommend getting one. Uh, we're not talking about the little Monod books that we pass out sometimes. Those are great too. Rick can help you with those if you want a, a copy of one. But there's a thicker book called Looking Unto Jesus by Isaac Ambrose. I would highly recommend um, giving yourself one for Christmas. Uh, it's loaded with so much good meditation. But he says this on the subject of Christ appearing and the importance of meditating on Jesus, looking to Jesus. He says, oh, my soul, meditate on this, talking about Christ, until you feel God's spirit working in your spirit, these inward, gracious, glorious manifestations. The appearance of Jesus is the clearest picture of the grace of God that anyone can have. You want to know what God's grace is all about? Go see Jesus. Today we want to see what our text says about the appearance of the grace of God to us. The grace of God in Christ. We'll really see it in four categories. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening statement, the grace of God in Christ, number one, saves us. Number two, sanctifies us. Number three, gives us hope. And number four, motivates us to good works. Look with me. In Titus 2.11 again, we see the first, God's grace in Christ saves us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This appearance is the revelation of the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. This appearance of God's grace is the coming of Jesus to carry out the great work of our salvation. He didn't just come, but he came with a purpose. The Greek word here literally means to embody the salvation of God. That's what bringing means. Jesus is the person through whom God achieves his salvation for men. It's hard not to miss the phrase that we see following that though, bringing salvation to all men. This is true in principle, right? The coming of Christ brought salvation to man. Though we know all men will not accept this free gift, the free gift of God's grace. As we saw just two weeks ago in chapter one of Titus, many will rebel, many will deny him and reject his grace-filled salvation. This is not a promise to save all men, but rather to make plain that Christ came to save men. 
But let's not get distracted by this phrase and miss the glorious reality that the appearance of God's grace in Christ brings salvation to us. He came to accomplish our salvation. What do we mean by salvation? We believe that by salvation, that only those who trust Jesus Christ as their savior, by virtue of his atoning death on the cross and submit to him as Lord, embracing him as supreme treasure, are justified, delivered from condemnation and receive eternal life. That's what we mean by salvation. We believe this spirit-wrought salvation leads to growth in grace through persevering. Holy Spirit-empowered resolve to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive with Christ. God's grace in Christ saves us, according to the text, bringing salvation to all men. But I want you to see the second thing, and we'll spend a lot of time here today. God's grace in Christ sanctifies us. Now, we can't get to point two if we haven't embraced point one, right? We have to receive the salvation that we find in Christ's death and resurrection. We have to believe that. We have to embrace that. That work has to take place in our spirit. But when that happens, there's a second thing that the text tells us, not only bringing salvation to all men, but instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The word instruct here means to train, to cause one to learn or to chastise, to mold the character of. The ESV uses the word training, but I think the NIV and K, the, the KJV, the King James, it uses the word teaching. Uh, if that's your English translation, I think it, it, it's missing a little bit of the meaning. The idea is more of a parental or pastoral tone to lovingly shape and discipline. It's not just this cold teaching, but it's this warm bringing along, shaping, disciplining. The appearance of Jesus and his salvation brings this transformation to us. Believing and embracing the gospel doesn't just remove sin, but it also changes the posture of your heart. That's what it means by instructing us. There's this shaping, our hearts being formed in a way that God intends for it to be formed. One who has truly embraced Jesus as Lord obtains a new heart that begins generating Christ-like character. It's called sanctification. God's grace in Christ sanctifies us. Or perhaps to state it more plainly, it instructs, it disciplines, it teaches us to consecrate ourselves to God. If God has saved you, then you are on the path of sanctification. You do know God's word has been clear to us how you ought to consecrate your lives to him. Consecration to God is described to us in the text really in two forms. I know you looked at it this morning in Grow. The first form is in the form of denial. We must deny certain things. And the second form is in our behavior, our actions, how we live. We must live a certain way. Well, let's look at what the text calls us to deny. To, 
to deny or disregard our own interests, to act entirely unlike we would on our own. Something has to change us. Our heart posture has to change so that we know what to accept and what to reject, to refuse something that's not of God, to renounce it, to say no. The first is to deny ungodliness, instructing us to deny ungodliness. As believers, we ought to deny things that are not of God. Romans 1 tells us that ungodliness is the reason that the wrath of God is poured out. Jude tells us that God will judge the ungodly. And earlier in the pastoral epistles, if we just look back to Paul's letters to Timothy, we're told that the result of empty chatter or godless chatter is ungodliness. This denying is both cognitive and physical. We are to reject ungodly things that are not true and we're to deny ourselves from participating in anything that is considered by God's word as being ungodly. Ungodliness and God's grace are incompatible. The grace of God in Christ is incompatible with ungodliness. We must deny ungodliness or deny Jesus. You will deny one or the other. But the second thing that it tells us to deny is worldly desires. Similar to ungodliness, the terms worldly passions represent all things that are forbidden by God for the good of the soul of man. To have a desire or passion for something is not sinful unless that passion is aimed at the wrong object. The point is not let the lust of the flesh dictate your thoughts and actions. Secret sin comes to mind here. I don't know about you, but I'm often tempted to put my best foot forward to my fellow brothers and sisters. I want them to think well of me. And in an effort to do that, I'm tempted to conceal my sin. I don't want you to know how sinful I am. But in doing so, I'm hiding sin. I'm concealing it. I make it secret. And when I do that, I fall into a very dangerous trap. We all do. Do not let sin take root in your heart. If there are actions that you're committing in secret, bring them to light. Bring them to light. The grace of God in our lives moves us away from this type of behavior. Lean in once again to God's abundant grace. The exposing of your sin as painful and maybe embarrassing as it might be is for the good of your soul. It's how we taste the good grace of God. And when you confess sin, you find that God is compassionate. He's generous. He's full of grace. But when we hide sin, we're attempting to use God's grace to ease our conscience about sin. And though God's grace is free and abundant, I believe irresistible even, I see verses like 2 Corinthians 6.1 and I'm warned. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says this, and working together with him, that's Christ, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How is that possible if it's free 
and abundant and irresistible, how is it possible that we can receive the grace of God in vain? Well, I'll take you back to my illustration for a second. We would all agree that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We're in that cold, dark room, and we don't even know that light exists. We don't know that a hatch is there, much less a ladder. Somebody has to open that hatch, let the light in, and even let the ladder down for us. I think we would all say that if somebody did that for us, open that hatch, let the light in, let the ladder down, that they are saving us from our helpless situation. None of us would claim that I saved myself in that instance. But if somebody opened the hatch, let the light in, rolled the ladder down so that we could climb out and we said, no, thank you, that would be a rejection of the salvation that had been provided. All that grace extended to us in the opening of the hatch and letting the ladder down would be in vain if we chose not to climb up that ladder and be saved. To receive God's grace in vain is to know and believe the truth, to know that the hatch is there, to know that the ladder's been let down, believe that it can actually save us and still not accept it. To know and believe the truth of Christ's sacrifice for your salvation but to reject that salvation because you're unwilling, perhaps because you treasure something more than Christ and his salvation, perhaps there's some worldly desire that has your attention. Well, that's how you receive the grace of God in vain. God's grace, when received, will sanctify the true believer by instructing him to deny ungodliness and to set aside all worldly desires or passions. Christ becomes your greater treasure. But God's grace doesn't just teach us to deny things. It also trains us to live in a way that honors him. Look with me in Titus 2.12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, to conduct ourselves in a certain manner with sound mind, soberly, temperately, discreetly, self-controlled. This first characteristic of living in a way that honors God seems to address the actions of oneself to keep, one, to keep one's actions under control in moderation, with humility, seeking to please God in and of ourselves, to live sensibly. Let me live in a way, this is not selfish, to do myself good. The second phrase that we see there is to live righteously, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly and righteously. This second characteristic of grace-filled living appears to address our actions toward others, perhaps our neighbors, righteously, to, to act justly, properly, agreeable to the law of God, to do what is right toward other men horizontally. And then the third phrase that we see, not just deny, but to live sensibly, righteously, and it says godly. The final action for Christian living addresses our behavior in light of our knowledge of God. To act piously. This action, to, to live godly, is the opposite of the first denial listed, right? To deny ungodliness or to live godly. Paul seems to indicate that 
consecrating ourselves in view of his grace extended to us in Christ should shape our living in our own life in relation to others and in such a way that acknowledges God is supreme. God's grace in Christ sanctifies us. But then we find this little phrase at the end of verse 12, in this present age. What is the significance of adding the final modifying phrase here? In this present age. Well, I believe Paul has drawn a timeline for Titus in a sense. God's grace has appeared in the past. His coming, Christ appearing, God's grace bringing us salvation. That's completed. Jesus has done that informing the way that we live now in this present age. So this first coming informs how we live now. And now he's about to speak to the future. So I believe that phrase is Paul laying out this timeline so that we can now understand what he's about to write, this looking into the future. Christ appeared bringing salvation. That's past. We are now called to live consecrated lives, to deny these things, to live in a certain way in this present age that's here. And now we want to look forward. Number three, God's grace in Christ gives us hope. Verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you see the timeline that Paul's drawn for Titus? the first advent, Jesus appearing, how we ought to live presently, and now this hope, this waiting on the appearance, this reappearing of Jesus, the second advent. The translations debate the words that they use here, looking or waiting, looking or waiting, depending on what English translation you might have, but I think collectively the translations get it right. We are actively waiting for the return of Christ. We are looking for his return, not passively, not nonchalantly, just waiting around for his return, but we are to be about something as we wait for Christ to return. We are looking forward to, we set our eyes, our gaze on something in the future. The previous actions of denying and living stated in verse 12, I think Paul has in mind here. I love the way Philippians 3.20 describes this looking forward. For our citizenship is in heaven. We know that. Paul's writing this book to the Philippians while he's on earth. He's still here, ministering, laboring, suffering. But he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to live in this life. It's an eager expectation for the one to come for eternal life. Looking, here's the way Titus describes it, for the blessed hope. I love what Paul says. I love the approach that he takes of viewing the second coming of Christ as a believer. The day of judgment, I tremble at the thought of it. It will be very sinister for those who deny him in this life. But that's not the vantage point that Paul writes from. He writes about this day, this second coming from the vantage point of a believer who has experientially already received the grace of God. And he says, that day is full of blessed hope. 
all the blessings of God in Christ will be ours one day when Christ returns. Paul says, blessed hope, that's ours. We have blessed hope. Christ rose from the grave. He will return. We have blessed hope. I'll be, I'll be honest, I thought that might get an amen. The glorious thought of Christ's resurrection, that he's coming again, amen, amen. Jesus had already conquered our sin on the cross. He's already defeated the evil one when he rose from the grave, but there's still a day coming when he returns to usher us into our home in heaven. Does that not do something to your heart? Are you not looking forward to the blessed day with great anticipation? I don't know about you, but I get excited about things in this life. Good Thanksgiving meal. I was, I was anticipating the sweet potato casserole. I wish I could have had some of Jim's deep fried turkey. I was anticipating, I was excited about that. I get excited when I know I have a vacation coming in the future, thinking about how fun the trip will be. There's this anticipation. It does something to my heart. How much more as we consider the blessed hope that our hearts should anticipate with joy the thought of Christ's return. Looking at God's grace to us in Christ gives us hope for the future. This hope is not a wish. I'm not just wishing that Christ will come back. It's a sure promise rooted in confidence that we have God's eternal word on the matter. It's true. It will happen. It's certain. You can rest in this reality. And we should anticipate that. Do you know what you will see on that day? We'll see another appearance of God in Christ Jesus. We began today's text saying, God's grace has appeared. That's just another name for Jesus. Paul just wants you to think of Jesus, and when you think of Jesus, you think of God's grace. Well, here, he's doing the same thing. He mentions this appearing, but he's just given us another name for Jesus. Listen to how he describes Jesus in the moment of his return. Looking for the blessed hope, and here it is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. When you see Jesus, you ought to see the glory of God. When you see Jesus, you ought to see the glory of our great God and Savior. He's not just a man. He's this. The glory of God made visible to us. The great salvation that God has extended to us is seen in Jesus. It has appeared. Jesus is the glory of our great God and Savior. Looking at God's grace to us in Christ should stir us to long for his return. To have Philippians chapter 3, eager expectation. We should be saying way more regular than we do. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Can I ask you this morning to join Paul in worship of God for a few moments? 
I have zero doubt in my mind that as Paul is mapping out this timeline, he wants to see, he wants Titus to see Christ appearing brought salvation. And he wants to, him to see that the grace of God in Christ causes us to deny certain things and to live a certain way. But he also wants Titus to see this coming of Christ that's been promised. Paul's just writing. He maps out this little timeline for Titus. And I have no doubt in my mind as he's mapping out the timeline, Paul forgets where he's at for a moment. And he erupts into consideration of Jesus. He begins to think about Christ and all that he's accomplished for Paul. And in the midst of penning these words, I believe he erupts into worship. He starts considering the glorious return of Christ and the great salvation that God has graciously extended to us in Christ and he begins to rest in him. And he begins to be fixated on Jesus again. He starts meditating on what he knows is true about Jesus. Begins to dwell on Christ. His mind begins to stay there on Jesus. It can't go anywhere else. And his heart begins to well up with love for Christ and he writes, verse 14, about Jesus who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. Why? Why would Jesus give up his life for us? Why would he step out of heaven? Why would he suffer at the hands of men he created? To redeem us from every lawless deed. Paul's in worship. He's theologically correct, but he's not trying to be theological right now. He's thinking about Jesus. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ's sacrifice has redeemed us from the pit, has removed us from every sinful deed that we've ever committed. He purchased us with his own blood. Oh, saint, do you believe that it's true? That he's delivered you from the curse of the law, that he's removed you from the condemnation of your sins that you earned for yourself, that he has paid the penalty that your transgressions have incurred. Do you believe in the redemption? Do not ever become numb to the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. This is not just a simple fact that we have to ascribe to. It's fuel for the hopeless heart of man. Christ has redeemed you. But the good news gets better. Who gave himself for two purposes, not just to redeem us from every lawless deed, but as I read just a minute ago, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He not only redeems from every sin, but also purifies you. Your sins aren't just removed and you're left to your own devices. No, you're filled with the righteousness of Christ. This is double imputation. Our sins are imputed to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to us. Our sins were assigned to Jesus. His righteousness was assigned to us. Our sins were attributed to Jesus. His righteousness is attributed to us. Can you imagine that while he's being sacrificed, he's accomplishing this for you? Paul's worshiping Jesus right here. He's not trying to get his theology correct, though it's right on point. He's worshiping. Jesus makes us righteous before the eyes of the Father. Let's not miss the language of the text here. 
He does all this for himself. Jesus redeems and purifies a people for his own possession so that he can take possession of you, so that he can own you, so that he can have you, so that you can be a slave to Christ. His death and resurrection deliver us from bondage and bring us into the kingdom of his father. That's the slavery that we await, that we obtain to the greatest kingdom anyone will ever know. And one day, the seals of the book of life will be opened and the judge of all the earth, the king of heaven, from his throne of majesty, will pronounce his judgment sentence. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What an invitation. What an invitation that the God of the universe would say to us through his son Christ, so graciously say to us, Come, come be a part of my kingdom. Come be a part of my family. I'm extending this to you through my son. My grace is extended to you. When he sacrificed himself, he redeemed you and purified you and made you righteous for my kingdom. I told you I got lost in Isaac Ambrose this week. Rather than try to give you a little taste of that from my vantage point. Let me read what Isaac Ambrose said about this glorious moment where God invites us into his kingdom. This is what he says. Come my saints, come with me into glory. Come now from labor to rest, from disgrace to glory, from the jaws of death to the joys of eternal life. For my sake, that's God, for my sake, you have been reviled and cursed. But now it shall appear to all those cursed Esau's that you are the true Jacob's that shall receive the blessing and blessed you shall be. Come possess with me the inheritance of heaven where you shall be sons and heirs, kings and priests. Come, for my father has prepared and kept it for you ever since the foundation of the world was laid. That's the invitation that has been given to us. Oh, saints, let us join Paul in worship, worship of Jesus as we eagerly wait for the return of our Savior. That anticipation ought to well up in your hearts, especially when we read texts like this. But he doesn't just leave us in worship. Look with me in verse 14, that last phrase. When he does this, it says, zealous for good deeds. Looking to God's grace to us in Jesus Christ motivates us to action. As commentator Robert Yarbrough suggests, Paul does not conceive of these good works as optional activities or even virtuous ideas, but rather the definite outworkings of Jesus bringing salvation to us. Jesus sanctifying us for these good works this is not the price we pay for our salvation. It's not God saves us so now we labor for him to earn what he's given us. No, it was a free gift. But that free gift, that promise of eternity does something to a heart of a man. It changes your posture. 
It gives you new affections. And those new affections motivate you. They compel you to not only deny something and act a certain way or even long for hope, but to carry out good works in the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what we find in the text. When we receive God's grace, we respond not begrudgingly, but with zealousness, eagerness to do good works. So let me ask, are you eager to labor for the Lord? Not because you bring something that adds value to yourself, but because you know in your heart it's what you're motivated to do because of your love for Christ. Well, let's finish with a word of application as we look at verse 15 together. I only have two pieces of application in closing. Here they are. Number one, this is to all the saints. Look to Jesus. It's been application more than once in this pulpit. I think it's fitting for today's text. I think it's exactly what Titus is calling, excuse me, what Paul is calling Titus to call the believers to do. To meditate, believe, worship, deny ungodliness, live holy lives, do good works. The application abounds for the saints in this text. But Paul's writing to Titus the pastor. And to you, pastors, God writes through Paul to Titus these words to pastors of our day. He says these things. The text that we just looked at, the qualifications that has been laid out for elders and their responsibility and the callings that Jordan gave on different groups last week. He says, these things, this is what he tells pastors, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So I want to speak to my fellow pastors again. In this moment, shepherd the flock among you by speaking the truth in love, exhorting with good biblical doctrine, study God's word, the words of Jesus, and reproving those who rebel against the truth that we saw a few weeks ago. But God's word tells us right here, do this with all authority, with all authority, God has given authority to the church, his bride. And that bride, God has called you to be under shepherds. Do not shrink back from the command to speak, exhort, and reprove. It's your job. This is what God has called us to. You do so with the authority of God behind you. But dear brothers, if that's true, and I believe it is, that he's called us to do this with all authority, let us also do it with all humility. When God gives you authority to shepherd his flock, he holds you to a standard of humility that never abuses the power that God has given you. Let's be humble men. This congregation will love you for your faithfulness to God's word and your tender care for their souls. Love and enjoy your calling. Don't grow weary. Go feed off Christ again. Love the saints, preach the truth. I find it interesting that the text says this 
it was clearly an issue that was a problem on the island of Crete for Titus. It says, let no one disregard you. We know from our text just a few weeks ago that many opponents will come. Many will speak falsely about the truth of God, but they'll also speak falsely about you trying to discredit you. Many will try to subvert your leadership. But according to the text, God is with you. Do not back down from heralding the truth of the gospel and leading God's people courageously. For God's grace in Christ Jesus saves us, sanctifies us, gives us hope, and motivates us to good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gospel-loaded text, rich in good theology. But Father, I pray texts like this would motivate us, would motivate our hearts to look to Jesus and worship. And Father, I'm confident that if we see the Jesus of the Bible, then we know and understand the grace of God. And I'm confident that if we see and look at the Jesus of the Bible, we'll see the glory of our great God and Savior in the person and work of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would cause us to long for Jesus, to see him and to worship. And Father, we know when that happens, we'll be motivated to do good works. Father, would you do what Titus 2, 11 through 15 teaches in the heart of this church. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.